and I found out that the issue was actually not with the DCI, but with a family member of his. You have to have the ability to process a lot of information very quickly, come up with a plan and execute it in seconds. I thought that was kind of a myth. <laughs> well, so did I. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. I'm Jim Clemente, your host, with Francie Hakes. How you doing, Francie? Good. How are you, Jim? Good. Wanted to say hi to our listeners. Hi, listeners. <laughs> so glad that you're joining us. We're very happy to be back with Best Case, Worst Case. And we're really excited today because we have one of our favorite interviewees to come on for Best Case, Worst Case, Bob Ruff of Truth and Justice Podcast. How you doing, Bob? Doing really well. How are you guys? Great. We're doing good. I'm really happy to have Bob because we promised our listeners after he gave a tease interview at live at CrimeCon that we'd have him on for the full best case and worst case interviews, and here he is. Yeah. So, Bob, we're really uh, happy to have you here because we know that your career has taken quite a turn recently, hasn't it? Yeah, I've completely taken a completely different direction from where I spent the first 20 years of my adult life. Well, I know that uh, you were a an arson investigator and a fireman, right? Yeah, I mean, I was uh, arson investigator is is what kind of comes out to the forefront because of what I do now. But you know, primarily I was a firefighter, then you know, fire lieutenant, then fire chief, and and uh, and my job, arson investigation, was something I did along with my main career. So I I did both those things. Great. Well, today we want to talk to you about your best case. And would that be a case from when you were an arson investigator or in your new career? Uh, well, the case I have prepared is, um, is, is from my old career as an arson investigator, but it, but it relates to what I do now where I work on you know, potential wrongful conviv conviction cases. Great. Well, so what kind of a case is it then? Uh, it, was a, it was a structure fire. Uh, and it was actually a fire that I responded to as the on-duty firefighter. Um, the the town I worked in, Niles, Michigan, had a minimum staffing of each station of one person, believe it or not. Uh, mm. And that's I think a lot of people have a misconception of what the fire service looks like nationwide based on you know, what they see on TV. You know, nobody does a rescue me based for a volunteer fire department in Kentucky somewhere. Right. Um, and so what we had was a combination department, which meant you had... Uh, one to three guys at each station who were full-time firefighters that stayed there 24-7, and then we were supplemented by reserves or paid-on-call firefighters who would respond directly to the scene from home. Uh, and this particular night, it was just me at the station all by my onesie when the tones dropped at 2.30 in the morning. 
the now, Bob, tones when, drop. Yeah, the, what does that mean when the tones drop? I, what I love about this podcast, Jim, is interviewing our friends and colleagues and giving our listeners that behind police, behind fire lines look at things like lingo and terminology. So you said two things. One, you said structure fire, which I'd love for you to expand on. And then two, tones dropping. What does that, what do both of those mean, Bob? Okay, well, structure fire is, is just like it sounds. It's a, a fire in a structure of some kind. This particular structure was... Uh, what we would call a taxpayer, which it means there is a business in the lower floor and then there are living quarters above it. Uh, and it was actually at a, in a Dairy Queen with an apartment above. Um, wow. And then, and then the, the tones drop uh, that for, and, and this is not even just fire services because some of this is regional too. But uh, in my part of the country at the fire department, we are notified of a fire call by what we call tones. And th- this goes way back. I, mean, I don't know how interested you really are in this, but way back yeah. in the, the the 60s and 70s, they actually had, you, you guys are familiar with toning forks, right? Yeah. Sure. Okay. So the way it would work is there's a radio frequency that all the fire departments are on. And they used to have these uh, boxes that would uh, they would be programmed with crystals for your particular tone pair for your department. So mm. dispatch when, say, in this example, Niles Township, now this is way back, Niles Township would have a call, they would key up the microphone and take the two tone forks for that they were the, the tone pair for that department, and they would do, do, you know, whatever your tone and, pair was, and that would activate an alarm that would activate all these boxes where they would they would beep and wake you up. Uh, of course. And that, that you, so you didn't have to memorize the tone. The The boxes were set so that those tones would activate them? Correct. Uh, and, of course, that was way back. Now, now technology has come a long way, but not too far, because we still use the exact same system. Every department has their own tone pair with two different frequencies. The difference is it's all done with a computer now. So now dispatch pushes a button, and that sends the tone pair out. So it wow. just, the terminology has always stuck around that uh, our, our tones dropped when we get a call. That's cool. All right. Well, so you got this call, and what happened next? Yeah. So, um, and, and what's interesting, you know, because of course I've been keeping up on all of your episodes, and I really love what you guys are doing. And you know, I'm I'm listening too, and thinking, you know, I'm coming on to interview, and what I'm thinking is, I'm not like any of these people, you know, because oh. because uh, as thank God, Bob, <laughs> because you're special. That's right. Totally. Oh, I, I mean, it's, it's so intrigued and everything. The the last interview you just did, and I apologize, for, I forgot the the female officer's name that was just on. It's Joanne Sutherland. Yes. Uh, her, her experience was probably the closest to mine, where she was actually on a scene as something was happening. Uh, because that's the big difference as, as firefighters. And, you know, a lot of the, the people that, that are on the show and will be guys like Jim Fitzgerald and, and these guys, they, they come in after a scene happens, and then it's all about the hunt and the investigation that they go through. Right. Where, from my side, you know, this story starts at 2.30 in the morning with me sound asleep at the fire station and all of a sudden, the lights come on. There's a loud horn going off right outside my bunk. <laughs> and I have 60 seconds to be dressed in my turnout gear and rolling out of the station. Wow. Fire engine. Wait, wait, Bob, I have a question. Mm-hmm. This is really important, and I hate to stereotype, but especially for our female listeners. Okay. I'm thinking of you, ladies. When you put on your gear, do you slide down a fire pole? Please say yes, even if the answer is no. <laughs> I have slid down fire poles. Uh, but not at that particular station. <laughs> All right, Bob, I thought she was actually going to ask, how do you manage to get 
undressed and then dressed in 60 seconds. And does that mean that you don't have to get undressed? Correct. So you it depends on everybody's got their own style. So for me, as far as, you know, how they sleep at the fire station, for me, I would always sleep in a pair of like sweatpant, cut off sweatpant shorts and a t-shirt and socks, which I hate. It's just a little behind the scenes in that business. I hate sleeping in socks, but you don't want to have to put your socks on at 2.30 in the morning. Imagine if you were sound asleep in your bed and I came in and blew an air horn in your ear and you got 60 seconds to, to be doing something productive. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would definitely not do that. And you wouldn't want to blow an air horn at me in the <laughs> South anyway, because you might get shot. Right. Uh, but all the lady listeners are now thinking to themselves, okay, now we know what firefighters wear to sleep. And they're thinking about calendars. Yes. But anyway, back to the topic, Bob. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and even with that, though, you know, everybody's different. You know, I have there were guys that worked at my house that in their bunk rooms, they would sleep in you know with no shirt on or with whatever you know whatever they wanted to it just for me it was all about the efficiency i'm ready where i can jump straight into my bunker gear with what i'm already so all those clothes are underneath my gear okay well let's not talk about underclothes anymore and let's get back to the case because i think francie's getting distracted here no never uh yeah so so we jump out and and so the tones drop the horns go off and and so that just jars you awake and then immediately you're up and headed for me that night I'm 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 rushing through the station to the fire engine. As I'm doing that, the dispatcher comes on after the tones and tells us what we have. And they said we have a port of a structure fire, smoke showing. They give us the address, and it's the the Dairy Queen on South 11th Street. So I you know jump into the truck. Within you know by the time she's done talking, the doors are going up, the lights are on, the sirens are blaring, and then I'm reporting engine 20s en route. And so, so uh, Bob, at this point, is your, I mean, I can only imagine that just being woken up by an air horn would get your, or an air horn type tone would get your adrenaline pumping, but you've got 60 seconds to get all of your clothes on, listen to what's happening. You know, you're going to a fire. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what's going through your head? What sort of changes are happening in your body? Is your adrenaline pumping? Are you nervous? Uh, yeah, that's, it's something that it, it takes a long time to, uh, learn. I think there are certain people that are much just like uh, being an FBI agent or a prosecutor. There are certain people that are just wired better for that profession. Um, Cause I've seen people that just are just really sharp people, good learners that just can never get it. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and also to be in the position I was in where I was man- manning a station by myself, you know, so it's not like I was, a, there are bigger houses where there'll be what we call a backstep fireman, which, you know, they have no responsibility whatsoever, but except for to put the fire out, they're told what to do. So for me, I've got to I've got to be mentally prepared to drive a fifty thousand pound truck down the street. I have to know where I'm going, you know, as far as so I have to rem- remember all of my maps and my addresses and my cross streets, where I'm going. I'm reviewing the dispatch information because we have to think because we're a small department. What might I need? I'm gonna, you know, are is there water in that area? Are there hydrants? If there are, then I need more manpower and more engines coming. If it's in a rural department or rural area. With no hydrants, I need tenders or tankers, who are big trucks full of water to come bring us water. So you're, you're, there's a lot of. <laughs> I was, I went to a therapist at one time, and they, they told me that I have like OCD and ACD, which made me very good at my job as a firefighter. Not so much <laughs> when I'm just trying to do some paperwork. No, because that mean you, that means you had to have that kind of laser focus. It's it, you have to have the ability to process a lot of information very quickly, come up with a plan, and execute it in seconds. So you're you're driving this truck, and you're the only fireman heading to the Dairy Queen? Yeah, and that's not typical of a lot of departments, and it's not particularly safe, but that's the way we did it. 
Yes. Wow. And so, you know, I go, I go down the road and, and I'm, I'm looking for, you know, you're looking for things. You're, you're actually smelling too a structure fire, a good, what we'll call, what we call a working fire will have a distinct smell to it. And that's when it gets into the structure of the building, old wood insulation, they have a particular smell. So you're, you're kind of smelling, you're looking to see if there's a plume of black smoke going up in the air. There wasn't in this case. Uh, cause you're, you don't have a lot of help coming. So you need to know if you need to order more, more help and ask other departments to come for mutual aid, so on and so forth. Well, Bob, how far away is help? Let's say you get there, which I'm sure you're going to tell us in a minute, but you have to know at this point how far away any help you might need is. How far was the closest available truck with, you know, ladders and hoses? There was, there's another, in this particular instance, there was another department, another fire station that was about five miles to our South. Uh, it was actually in a. I live. We worked right on the state lines. So it was actually in a different state. That department was in Indiana, um, but there, luckily, there were a full time staff department, which means a quicker response. You don't have to wait for volunteers to go to the station to get the trucks to come. Um, and we did. And I did end up ordering them uh, to come help right away. So they got there shortly after I did. All right. Good. So you're on your way there. You are. It's in the middle of the morning. You're bleary eyed and all excited and intense and and focused now uh, what happens when you first see the fire well so we, we pull up on scene and and again i mean the the thought process and the decisions you make don't don't ever stop in the in that business so i'm pulling up i'm locating where the fire's at or where the fire hydrant's at I'm examining the building, doing what we call our initial size up, and so I'm I'm reading the smoke, which a lot of people, you know, a lot of people think firefighters just squirt water at fire, but there's actually I have a I have a, a college degree in fire science. There's a there's a lot that goes wow. into um, uh, reading a fire. You can tell a lot about what's happening based on just the smoke. So it's called smoke reading. So in this particular case, I see I, there's clear windows in the lower floor of the building. It's completely charged with smoke, but it's very light color smoke, and it's not moving very fast. So what that tells me is the fire is in a remote location, and it's scrubbed a lot of the color off on the way down. So my guess is, by looking at it, the fire's upstairs, and the smoke's oh, banking wow. down. And that's in one of the residential um, apartments above the Dairy Queen, right? Correct. And it wasn't, there's just one, uh, the, the upstairs of this Dairy Queen is just one living unit upstairs. Uh, and as far as I knew from our pre-planning and inspections, no one actually lived there, but that's what was upstairs. So I'm, I'm looking where the hydrant's at, trying to decide, do I have time to wait for people to get here? Do I need to make an immediate intervention? Because it's not particularly safe um, to go into a building with just one person. Technically, you're right. supposed to have two people on the inside and two people on the outside before you make entry. So in this case, the only other person on the scene is a Barron County Sheriff's deputy. So and, and, and this is, you know, us working together with law enforcement all the time. You know, I pull up. He says, "What do you need?" I said, "I need my hose drugged to the back of that building because you, know, you got to pick where am I going to make entry." It, it, you even have to make decisions based on: Do I want to kick that? Is this fire worth me destroying their thousand dollar glass door? You know, got it. You know, so there's always this cost benefit that is going through your mind. In this particular instance, I knew that there was a staircase of that building in the back. So um, now, now I have to be in command of the fire. I've got to talk to dispatch. I've got to order mutual aid. I've got to make decisions, pull the hose, and actually run the pump because uh, there's no pump operator in order to put this fire out. So, Bob, it sounds to me like what you said earlier with inspections that you had or your um, department had done prior told you that no one lived there. It sounds then like those kinds of fire inspections are critically important so that if you do have to respond to a fire, you know things like that. 
Oh, absolutely. And now there, there's new software and things now that we didn't have at that time where that you can actually upload those pre-plans into a computer where the officer in the officer's seat of the truck can be looking at that information on the way to the call. This particular one, I just happened to be the one that did that inspection a couple of years before, so I, I knew a little bit about the building. I just remembered it. So you're there, you've assessed the smoke and what it tells you. You know there are back stairs, so you decide not to kick in that $1,000 door. What happens next? We go for the $100 door in the back of the building, the wood door, and, and I go back, and by the time I get the hose line charged and I get the truck pumping, I follow the hose back where the officer had let it back there for me um, and had the hose waiting. At that point, one of my paid-on-call firefighters had just arrived on the scene, and so the two of us grabbed the hose, kicked the door in. The stairs were right there. We could see just a rip-roaring fire at the top of the stairs, wow. and and we, we hit the fire and beat it back and then forced our way up the fire, up the stairs into the upper floor and continued to put out the rest of the fire. and. Within five minutes, the fire's out. So just to tell the listeners, so your read of the smoke was actually correct, right? That it, you, you felt that it was probably burning from upstairs and the smoke was, what did you call it? Uh, Venting down? Banking down, but it's, it's a term called scrubbing um, is, is one for a, just a, a very, very brief lesson in smoke reading. Uh, have you ever been into a building or anything that had been, that had been on fire previously? Yeah, I have. Okay, I figured you probably had in your investigations. And, mm-hmm. and what do the walls usually look like? Uh, charcoal? Yeah, they're, they're black, right? And, yeah. and, and if you wipe your hands on them, your hands will become black. And then you can grab the probie and rub that on his face and tell him he's got something <laughs> on his face. Yeah. <laughs> well, nice. Well, so what smoke scrubbing is, is smoke is actually just a bunch of particles floating in the air. And so there are these black particles that make the air look black. That's smoke. So... Uh, when smoke goes past anything like a wall and it turns the wall black, what that means is it left the particles behind because the, the particles can't be in the smoke and on the wall at the same time. Therefore, the further it travels, the more things it goes past and turns black, the lighter colored the smoke becomes as it moves. So Got it. a fast moving light gray smoke tells you the fire started somewhere remote and has traveled past a lot of things before you saw it. Got it. Makes sense. Thanks. So now that you've sort of beat the fire back and it's five minutes later. Have you run into any people? What Have you figured anything out well, at this point? Nothing yet. And this is where you wear the two hats or, or multiple hats, as you heard, in a small town fire department, which, again, is a lot of departments. Um, is Now we have to move into investigation mode. we got to figure out how this fire started, why it started, if there was anything malicious happening. Uh, and so, you know, first, of course, we got to sit back and, uh, you know, pat ourselves on the back, drink some water, pose for some pictures for the newspaper, all that good stuff. Because everybody likes the firemen, right? So, Bob, my question as a prosecutor at this point is I'm thinking about evidence. And, of course, it seems to me that at every arson scene or every fire scene, you, the firefighters, potentially have to, by necessity, destroy some evidence with your water hoses and your feet and your presence and your DNA all over the scene. Right. And that's true. And that's actually one thing. It's a good point that even the lowest rank backstep firefighter is taught in in the fire academy how to best try to preserve evidence, meaning don't knock things over. You don't have to knock over. It's very similar to the story you had on, on last week where you're thinking, first of all, I got to protect property and life. At the same time, I have to preserve evidence. So there's always that balance there. Um, typically in a fire, you're not going to be, if it's a bad fire, you're not going to have much DNA or anything to work with because it just gets burned up. 
Um, but we are trying to preserve evidence, even even as far as, you know, by knocking, sometimes guys will get overzealous and take an axe and, and just knock holes in all the walls to make sure there's no fire. Well, that makes it very difficult to investigate the fire because we're looking for burn patterns on those walls. And when you knock the walls down, then there's no burn patterns left. Right. And what does burn pattern tell you about a fire? Like, how does that help you determine the cause of a fire looking at the burn patterns on the wall? Well, there's two things we look at when we're investigating a fire. And first, we're looking for origin. Where did the fire start? And then we're looking for cause. What caused the fire to start? And so burn patterns are part of what helps us determine where the fire started. And then we take all that evidence together and try to determine if, if we can figure out how the fire started. And so, and, and that leads right into what happened in this case. So it takes a little while. We do all of our mop up, put the hoses back on the truck, release the mutual aid companies. And we actually had the state fire marshal come down to help us do the fire investigation because it just seemed fishy. The doors were all locked uh, and the business was closed. And it started, but at a glance, it started upstairs because when I got there, the only place there was fire was upstairs. Mm-hmm. So um, as things get light, we start, you know, I, I do an initial interview with the owners as they they'd showed up. So we find out they were they were leaving town right when the fire started, which, of course, you know, immediately strikes us as uh, I don't want to say suspicious, but suspicious or odd. At least we, we definitely want to talk to these people. We need to anyway. Well, wasn't it two o'clock in the morning? It does seem like an odd time to leave town. Right. At this, well, by this point, it was, you know, by the time the fire's out and we're notifying people, it's 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. But yeah, it, it does. Very odd time. So they're on their way back, and we go through and we start doing an initial uh, investigation. So we're, we, we check the outside of the building for burn patterns. We move into the inside. We try to start as far away from the fire as possible, work towards it. And we're looking for one of the things we look for is called low burn. And so, you know, where's the, you know, fire burns up. So where's the lowest place this fire was burning? And that should give us an idea, in most cases, as to where the fire started. Now, there's exceptions to that because sometimes you'll have what's called drop-down. So if there's something on the wall that's burning and then it falls off the wall and hits the ground, that'll cause another low burn. So you've got to be careful not to mix that up with the true low burn in the room. Yeah, it sounds really complicated. Um, I know that the fire scenes that I've been at, man, I just can't make heads or tails out of anything. So it's really amazing that that you have that ability to study the fire and, and be able to deconstruct it, uh, to reconstruct what, what actually happened. So it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about how you make that determination. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, so can you tell us a little bit about how you make those kinds of determinations about things that might drop down or things that actually were origin points? Well, there's just, it's just like any investigation like like you would do, Jim, is it's, there's just no hard and fast rule. You have to take everything into account. So uh, I'll give you I'll give you just a little example from another fire uh, from a couple of years before this. It was a farmhouse that had burned down, and it was odd. It's a it's a vacant farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere. By the time we got there, fire's blowing through the roof, and the, the building burns down. And the, the homeowner comes up, the guy who owns the place, and we start talking to him. And he tells me that, I don't know how, there's no power to the building. I had pulled the, the main breaker fuse weeks ago, uh, so there was no power in the building. I don't know how that happened. So seems seems legit. And then we start looking into it, and there was actually a rookie state police fire marshal that was there with me that day digging. And we start looking around the basement, and she says, oh, look, he's telling the truth. Here's the main breaker fuse right here in the basement, right where he said it would be. So on on the surface, that would seem like, he everything adds up until you look closer at the details and realize that that main breaker fuse is laying on top of a shingle, which a shingle like a like a roof shingle like a roof shingle. So mm. it, it was a chunk of roof. So that means as the fire burned, the roof collapsed into the basement. That the fuse was thrown on top of it after the fact. Oh, mm. interesting and obviously very significant. Yeah, and then so then we go back and look in the fuse box, and you can tell by burn patterns because. You know, the, the fuse box was protected by that fuse being in it. So you can see everything in the face of the fuse panel is burnt, and you can see where that fuse is pulled out. But behind it, there's no smoke marks, much like you would look in a in a, in a a body. You know, you can tell, are, is there smoke in the lungs? That would tell you if they were alive when the fire was burning. Same thing with the fuse box. Well, what's in, yeah, what's interesting about that is it seems like he would have been better off if he had not said that, not taken right. out the fuse. I mean— so that there would have been a legitimate possibility that there was some electrical fire. Shocker, a dumb criminal. Well, and, and the, the fact of the matter is with this guy is he really didn't do anything wrong. He was afraid because his insurance agent or somebody had told him, hey, you should take that fuse out um, since you're not living in the house. And he hadn't. And he was afraid he was going to get in trouble for letting there be power. So he pu- it, wasn't, it wasn't an arson. Got you know, it. and your first thought was, why is he why is he lying? It's an arson, but it really wasn't. He had just done that because he was afraid of getting himself in trouble. So it was the cover and, up, not the well, there was no crime. It was just a cover up. Right. It was an accidental fire. Um. So so th- that's just a little example of how you know there's there's no hard and fast rules. You just you have to, and that that's some of the skill set that I apply to what I do on Truth and Justice is taking a very old case that's been just 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 destroyed. Uh, if it was, if it's a wrongful conviction and, and rebuilding it piece by piece, detail by detail. Right. That's what so, I know about your podcast, by the way. Truth and Justice is so interesting and, and engaging because you do that and you take the listeners through every single detail and you engage them. You let them help you, which is really an amazing thing. Yeah, I, I, more often than not, the a lot of the breaks we have in our cases come from the listeners 
So it's, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very similar to what I used to do. So getting back to the, the best case that we're talking about, um, back to the Dairy I, Queen, right? Back to the Dairy Queen, right? So I started doing my initial investigation, and the point of origin of the fire is obvious. At the top of the stairs, the floor is completely charred, and you can also see drip patterns down the staircase, which means so there's burn marks on the stairs that look like something was dripping down. So immediately, you guys who are not even trained arson investigators probably have an idea of what that looks like. Accelerant. Accelerant, exactly. So we, so the fire marshal. That's that's why I called the fire marshal in. So, so he gets there. We look at it. And we're like, oh, this is a complete set. And you can see all the burn, but everything indicates it started right here. Bob, for our listeners who have never been to a an arson or a fire scene, uh, could you answer this question? If there was an accelerant, is that the sort of thing you can smell? Or does the fire burn up all of the odor from gasoline or whatever might have been used as a potential accelerant? There are arson investigators out there that say they can smell it. And maybe they can. For me, no. I've never been able to. I've seen seen arson investigators pick up some ashes off the ground and sniff them and, and I've even seen them touch it to the tip of their tongue believe it or not <laughs> they've been watching oh, yeah, too much is... Miami Vice <laughs> right right and they're like mm, yeah this is an arson I can tell right now <laughs> it's like, but you know it's guys like that that cause people to look at arson science as junk science it's people that you know they, they, they claim to be able to do something they can't we're not magicians well, in this particular case what, what led us to having uh, a real concern is so we have a point of origin top of the stairs those drip patterns look bad too but the problem is, the next thing we do is try to figure out the cause, and there are no heat sources right there, and that's bad for the fire. If, there, there, if you can't see anything that would generate heat right there that caused the fire, that's a problem. Because fire a needs heat and oxygen to live, right? Right. What about a match? I mean, could... well, it, it, exactly. If it was a match, then it's an arson. Right, but you know. It was, but what I'm saying is, wouldn't a match be consumed completely, and you wouldn't be able to find anything there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so that's I, I mean, maybe I didn't make that that point clear enough. Is is you know, if, had there been a space heater right there, we'd say, okay, this is probably accidental. There's our our source, our point of origin, or our our cause, our heat source. Since there was no space heater there, that kind of limits us to a match, uh, something you know, some an intentionally set fire, right? Uh, is what we're left with. So. We, we've finished going through all the physical evidence, and we're both convinced there's no other possible explanation other than this was an intentionally set fire using an accelerant at the top of the stairs. And, Bob, when you said there's no heat source there, I assume that means there's no, you know, potentially faulty wires right there at the floor level. So you excluded all of that. Right. And, and that was the, there was literally there wasn't an outlet. There wasn't a wire. It was it was just there was nothing. There was nothing there that could have started that fire. Uh, and, and so this is the part why I call this my best case It's because how I said how it relates back to what I do now. There are a lot of people that at this point would already have these people in handcuffs and taken them downtown, turned over to the police and, and start interrogating them. But instead myself and the, and the state trooper that was working with me, uh, we start the process of doing what we're trained to do, which is first we interview and then we, we do a walkthrough and then if necessary, we move into an interrogation mode. But first, we just ask a lot of open-ended questions and and kind of walk around with the people and let us wa- retrace their steps um, before we go any further without putting any ideas into their mind. So would you call this a, 
a distinctly non-threatening kind of interview, nothing um, sort of law enforcement-ish about it. You're just asking the owners or the occupiers of the building some questions that anybody who was the, quote, victim of a fire would be asked. Yeah, exactly. And I wouldn't even say non-law enforcement because most law, you know, law enforcement officers are trained to do the same thing at first, you know, to have yeah, a It's just a non-confrontational interview, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So we start that. And what we're normally looking for uh in in an accidental fire is we're looking for the thing that changed. Cuz cuz in a lot of times if you can't figure out how a fire started, if you know, another quick example, car fire. Car fires are hard to figure out. Car fire in the engine compartment at Walmart one time. And we put the fire out. We're looking like, what in the heck? What is going on? What's different? And so I had walk me through your day. And as they go through, they're like, yeah. And then I stopped at the quick lube and I got my oil change. And then I came here. Mm. Like, ah, so somebody was in the comp- engine compartment. And then we look and we dig a little closer. And we noticed we thought that the oil cap had burned off. But as we look closer, it was actually way down in the engine compartment charred. They forgot to put the engine uh, or the uh, oil cap back on. So it just leaked out. Right, it leaked out onto the engine block, caught, caught the car on fire. Um, so that's kind of what we're doing. So, And that's actually what happens in this case. So we, we talked to the owner, and, and she tells us that you know, they, they were there. They have a routine at night. Uh, the husband comes in and does some cleaning and some paperwork. While he's doing that, she does all the laundry, and then they leave in the morning, and then they have some the, their employees come in in the morning and open the place up. That's just their routine. In this particular night, she tells us, same thing. She says, I was upstairs making a, or decorating a cake, and my husband was downstairs in the kitchen, and he was doing some paperwork. And so we, this, this particular place was structurally stable enough that we could walk through it. So we said, start walking us through. So she says, okay, I walked in, and I walked up these stairs, and, we, and she walked right past where we know the point of origin is. And we're watching her for cues, or for behavioral cues. Is she looking at it? Is she nervous? And she just walked right on by, has no idea. And I was in here, and then she walks. We literally had her every step she made three or four times up and down the stairs. Then I put the, the the stuff in the washer. Then I went in here. Then I came down here. I went back, took the stuff into the dryer, so on and so forth. And then the last thing she tells us is, then I took the all the stuff out of the dryer, and I put it into a basket, and I set it right here. And right here was exactly the point of origin of the fire. And we, had, of course, hadn't told her that yet. And so we're like, okay, so, and I, I just asked her the question, what was different about last night than any other night? So wait, Bob, says, she says it's a clothes basket of just mm-hmm. recently dried laundry items. Right. So, that, and that's what we know at this point. But what, yeah, what's and, the laundry, the the uniforms and things like that, tablecloth? Well, what? At, that, at that point, we don't, we don't even know yet. Okay. You know, you know right. so she, cause, cause the first question I ask her is, why are you leaving the laundry at the top of the stairs? And she says, because I leave everything here. And then the girl that comes in in the morning folds them and puts them away. That's our deal. Okay. And I says, so what was different about last night? Uh, nothing. Everything, well, the only thing was we were leaving on vacation. And so we were in a hurry. So I had to stop the dryer before it was done oh. and, and put them in there. And so, I, okay. So now we found something that we, <laughs> she just pointed us right to the point of origin. And we found the thing that was different. And so then we ask, what was in the laundry? And she said, oh, all the rags from the kitchen. Okay, and, so, and you do this every night, right? So then we go downstairs to the kitchen. Show us what you clean with these rags. And they show us the grills and all these different things. And we, we look at, so is it, it's these, so there's, were those rags oily? Sure. So then what kind of oil do you use? We look at the oil they use. 
and it's an organic oil that they use, an organic cooking oil. Okay. So a dryer, I don't know, a lot of people don't realize this, the last 10 minutes of your dryer, that cool down phase, that once your dryer is done drying and heating for the last 10 minutes or so, it blows cool air in there and keeps tumbling the clothes so they don't stay hot. Right. Well, something that I've never seen in my entire career as a firefighter is what is known as auto ignition or spontaneous combustion. Mm. I thought that was kind of a myth. <laughs> well, so did I. Uh, but I've read about it in many of my books and many of the classes that I took. And, and it takes a very specific set of circumstances. And what you have to have is some kind of an organic oil that has to be moist and and heated. And then it will start to break down. Well, so the thing that changed was these th- these these rags have oil on them, organic oil, all the time. With her stopping the dryer before it was done, she said they were still hot and moist when she put them into the into the clothes basket, tucked them all in there so they had an enclosed space. They're all packed in there nice and warm and moist. And what we noticed was there were bits and fragments we could see as we really looked of, of rag that were left. Most were completely consumed, but there was no basket. So we asked her what kind of basket it was. It was a plastic basket, which, when melts, will drip and pour down the stairs. Right. So at the end of the day, this was an accidental fire caused by auto-ignition or spontaneous combustion from oily rags that were taken out of the dryer before the cool-down phase. Wow. And, and we were within an inch of locking this lady up before we even ever even talked to her. And so that that is my best case because, number one, it was really, really interesting, and we were able to completely rebuild that scene and— the 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 victim in this case, the people who own this building, never had any idea that they were suspected of any wrongdoing. Wow! You know, and we we were able to solve to solve the arson, or excuse me, solve, find the cause and origin of the fire without ever pointing any fingers or accusing anyone. And and that's how I wish a lot of investigations would go. Right? You know, it's funny because you bring to mind a, a big investigation that I did that the world never heard about, really, because. Uh, the same thing happened. I was actually investigating the director of central intelligence, and uh, that's the DCI. And and many people don't understand what that term means. It's not just the director of the CIA. It's the director of all intelligence agencies in the United States, most of which are secret. They're classified. The names of these agencies are classified. So the DCI has a huge job. Anyway, I was investigating that person, and it was a it was a fairly intense investigation because I was doing a covert investigation against the most covert agency in our country. Who and, presumably takes lots of countermeasures yes, to ensure he can right. be intercepted, surveilled, otherwise. Exactly. And so I did this investigation. And over the course of the investigation, eventually I got to the point where I needed to sit down and interview him, just like you did these people. But there's no way to do that without being sort of overt and and sort of confrontational because because of the nature of it. I mean, obviously, when an FBI agent says to the DCI that he needs to have an interview, uh, you know, the guy had lawyers there and all this other stuff. But anyway, over the course of the investigation, I uncovered a bunch of things and, and it looked really bad, really bad for him. But I didn't just make the arrest and so forth and, and put this out in the news, but I interviewed more and more people and I found out that the issue was actually not with the DCI, um, but with a family member of his that 
was making it look like he had been doing something. And so I was able to prove that. Um, I was able to resolve the case. I was able to prevent this from ever becoming public. And uh, when that person retired from his position, uh, he came and spoke at the FBI and I was sitting in the audience. And when he came down off the stage and he saw me, he gave me a big hug, which was very different than the reception I got when I was investigating. Right. I'm and sure. He, and he said, uh, this is the greatest FBI agent in the world. And because I could have ruined his career for a bad reason. Uh, and right. For no reason, actually. And, uh, and I didn't. And so he was ever grateful for that. So I'm glad to hear that you also had a similar experience because it does feel good when you do your job, when you use your brain, when you find out things that most people wouldn't even bother thinking about, uh, and you exonerate somebody who needed to be exonerated. Yeah, it, it, especially you know now as I look in, into so many cases where, you know, uh, in, on Truth and Justice, you know, Edward Eights and Jesse Eldridge, the guys I'm working on now, and I, I, I always think back to, you know, my prior experiences, and I, I look at their cases and thought, you know what, if, if that detective had just done his damn job, if he had just looked further and not just taken so-and-so's word for it, uh, that wouldn't have happened to them, so... Uh, yeah, I, I, I wish all investigations would go to the same way that you did it, and uh, and I was I was lucky enough to have that happen in the one that I was working. Bob, I want to go back really quick here before we wrap up and ask you kind of a personal question. You said that you have a degree in fire science. Does that mean that you went to college to become a firefighter? Yeah. Um, well, sort of. I didn't. That wasn't my initial intention. My initial college degree. Or excuse me, my initial college major was mathematics. Believe it or not, and that's a long story that was a mistake, uh, <laughs> based on a, an Air Force ROTC scholarship. Um, but once I I made the shift and decided that I wanted to get into the fire service, uh, then that's when I started my degree program. And then by the time I took my early retirement, I was actually the director of that program at our local college here of the fire science program. Well, I'm sure the owners of the Dairy Queen and the building there are grateful that you made that change because another fire arson investigator might have come out differently in what I'd like to call the case of the oily rags. There you go. The spontaneous <laughs> combustion of the oily rags. That's, That's right. pretty amazing. What I want to ask, though, is what kind of detergent are they using that doesn't get rid of the oil on the rags that they are then using to clean after that? That's, That's supposedly organic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'd be surprised. It, 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 the little bits of remnants, uh, uh, little molecules of that organic oil that gets left behind. But once the once the rag dries, it's no big deal. Uh, but it just it was a it was a literally a, I've I've read about I had read about in textbooks and classes that I'd taken, you know, very similar situations happening, and that's what I kind of drew on. I I still remember the moment looking at Scott, who was the um, the state trooper that was there with me, and just looking at him thinking. Dude, I, I think this was spontaneous combustion, and he and so mind you, there's police and firefighters work together every day, and we have a real camaraderie. But we also have a real rivalry. So he looked at me and and called me a dumbass, <laughs> uh, and, then, and then I was like, no, dude, listen, think about this. And we started talking about it, and then we we both came to that conclusion. It was it was shocking. It never happened before. Never happened since. I've told that so I used to teach around the country, um, teaching classes on 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 firefighting, not so much on arson investigation, but on um, systematic risk management. 
And I've told that story many, many, many times around the whole country, and I've never come across anyone that has had a similar situation ever. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Well, it's so cool. Well, there must have been similar situations before, and that's why you got those teaching points and you were able to apply them. So it's pretty rare. That's that's pretty amazing. But I don't I don't think that that's something that's new to you. I think you've had a lot of amazing moments in your career. And uh, I would really like to have our listeners tune in to Truth and Justice podcast because, Bob, there's so many episodes, takes you through so many twists and turns of these cases where he's actually finding not only that people were wrongfully convicted, but he's actually tracking down the real killers. Well, and Bob, this is such a tribute to you, both the case that you're talking about today, your best case, and also your work on Truth and Justice Pod. And it just shows that you are interested in looking behind first impressions. And first impressions are sometimes completely and utterly wrong. Misleading as hell, yes. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it, because that's that's every wrongful conviction. You know, there was the the detectives built a case and the prosecutor prettied it up and presented it. And that's the story. That's the impression everyone has. And uh, yeah, and that's exactly what we do is we go all the way back to the beginning and find out if that initial investigation was accurate to begin with. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming on Best Case, Worst Case and telling us about your best case. And we can't wait to have you on to talk about your worst case as well, because those cases can actually be the best in terms of teaching us and uh, in terms of making us better investigators. So we're looking forward to that. Yeah, thank you so much, guys, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Great. Well, thank you. And for now, we're signing off on Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Terrell Parham. Music by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wondering.